Hey, this is BT Wolf, and in light of what's going on in the world right now, I wanted to create a selection of some of my favorite inspiring stories from our Orange Juice for the Year guest to date about rising to adversity, finding balance within the chaos, reconnecting to what matters, and weathering the many storms of life. I hope you enjoy and stay safe. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. Today I'm joined by the beyond incredible Sarah Seidner, CNN's multiple award-winning national and international correspondent who's led the way in championing humane and honest reporting while simultaneously dodging bullets, literally (laughs) battling hurricane winds and having to fight her way out of angry mobs. I don't know anyone who's put herself more on the line than Sarah. Sarah was live throughout the 2008 Mumbai terrorist attacks that lasted 60 hours. She was part of the team that won a Peabody for CNN's coverage of the Arab Spring. Her work in Libya reporting in the midst of rebel fighters during the fall of Tripoli has been recognized all over the world, and for it she was honored with Sky's WFTV Achievement of the Year Award. In addition to all of this, Sarah's won awards for her coverage of the Gaza conflict, for her 2012 Freedom Project, Operation Hope, and for reporting on India's unwanted girls. But this list goes on and on. When people talk about heroic journalists, this is what they mean. Sarah, I'm so happy you could be with us today. I am delighted to be here. It has been literally months that we've been talking about this. And I'm like, I have to see BD. You always lift my spirit. And so, um, and we need lifting right now, journalists around the world. So thank you for having me on. And I know your schedule is totally nuts. So we, we kind of just had to force this to happen. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we did. Um, Why do you think I played Rainbow Connection by Kermit? Well, it is sung by a frog, so that's one. And I know we we both have a love of frogs. Um, I don't know why, but that song always makes me feel teary-eyed. Not sad, but sort of emotional. So you were mainly raised by your mom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And what were you like as a kid? High energy. Even though I was shy, um, you could not get me out of a tree, off of a horse. I loved animals to a fault um, where... Like once I had a pony and the pony came into the house um, and ate a bunch of food and mom wasn't all that pleased with me at that point. But animals, goats, you name the animal and like snakes, all of that, frogs, um, they've been my friends um, because I was an only child. And so animals have always sort of been, I've always seen them almost as other people, you know, I was like, okay. And I talk to them and I, you know, have conversations they often don't talk back, but it's fine. They listen. Um, so, but very energetic, like way too much energy. I'm pretty sure I probably would have been medicated if I, <laughs> if it was now. Um, Thank but God it, you won. Well, it was go play, go outside, yeah, yeah. go outside. 
Um, and so that's what I did. And I came up with, you know, imaginary worlds and that whole thing, like my imagination really had to work hard because I would get bored because I was so energetic. Um, so it was wonderful living in the country. There were some pitfalls. It was not easy being a person of color uh, where we were. But I, I have to say I would not have traded that sort of country life for anything in the world that shaped who I am. Were you always brave? I'm not brave. That's the thing is that, you know, we talk about bravery as if it's like a complete <clears throat> lack of fear. Like, oh, fearless. I think of all of the terrible things that can happen when I get into my car in L.A. traffic. Like, I am constantly thinking about, oh, my God, accident, I could die. I could, I mean, it is this crazy brain that I have. I call it, like, the news brain, where it's like all the negative things that can happen to you on your way to work, on your way to the doctor, <laughs> on your way to getting coffee. You could, you know trip over a thing and you know on your way when you're running like I think of all the horrible things that can happen I feel like what bravery is for every human being is being able to take that step knowing that it can be your last mm. and it's that conquering of fear over and over and over again that is true bravery not being unafraid if you are unafraid you are probably going to get run over by a bus because you're going to walk out into a traffic because you're not, you're not afraid of anything Fear is a gift. Like, we've been given fear to keep us alive, I think. Um, but, I, but I do struggle um, a lot with fear. And it's the idea of going, you know what? I'm afraid. I don't care. I'm going. I'm, I'm taking that step. And it's not always the right step, and it's not always the perfect thing to do. But sometimes it feels good just to do it, yeah. to remind yourself that, like, you have some control over you know, your decisions in life, not total control, but, but some. And I think it's also that idea that a lot of the time when we're out of our comfort zone, it's when we're the most alive and the most creative and the most present. So in that sense, it's almost just using fear as a way of being reminded of, you know, why we're here yeah. and that our time is limited and anything can happen. Um, but that adds a certain presence to the quality of life. It absolutely does. I think, and this is going to sound odd, but one of the times when I, when I clearly remember feeling so alive, so present, that I could smell the air was when our lives were threatened. We were in Libya. I mean, I can remember every single detail, um, the taste in my mouth from the dust sort of the, the, the dustiness of the place, the way that the sun looked. Like, I can remember things because I wasn't worrying about what was going to happen. I wasn't thinking about what we had done in the past. I was literally paying attention to the exact moments that we were having as they were happening. And it's the weirdest thing. And I told someone, I said, you know, you can get addicted to being a war correspondent. And they said, like, that's ridiculous. You know, what do you mean? And I'm like, because it makes you be present in a way that other things don't. I have some friends who um, were in the Army and in the armed forces. And, you know, that's why I think sometimes people have a hard time when they come back to civilian life. It's a whole different experience when you are so focused on trying to stay safe and alive uh, when your life can actually go right then and you're very aware of that um, it changes you it changes your perspective and it makes you pay attention um, I wish that I could do that every single day without having my life threatened 
And, you know, you've been in so many extreme situations, you know, maybe not so much when you were a, a local television yeah. news anchor, but when you joined CNN 2007 and then after that spending time as a foreign correspondent in Jerusalem, Tripoli, New Delhi, Kabul, yeah. to name a few, um, how do you, you know, reconnect and um, slow down and be reminded of the beauty of the world? Do you have any tips? <laughs> um, it's hard. I don't. I am often far, far, far way off balance. Um, and I've always, you know, there's always this thing. It's pretty like an 80s and 90s thing where, like, you have to have balance in your life. You have to have your family and you have to have your that and everything has to be just so. And you have to be, you know, all this stuff. It's like, you can be superwoman. You can do this and you can have this. But they all should be balanced. It's such bullshit. It's impossible to balance for me. There are other people that are, like, made out of something that is otherworldly that I marvel at. Um women that I know who are like really good at saying no, but they are far and few between. Um, balance for me is just finding contentment and happiness with what it is I'm doing at the moment and trying to pay attention to what I'm doing. That doesn't always happen. I mean, my family suffers because of my job a hundred percent, like a hundred percent. They, they go through it because of my work, because it's always, sort of gnawing at me and it's also because I turn my attention to it because I'm interested in it um, so that balance is out of whack but I think as I'm as I'm getting older oh god the older speech but as I'm getting older I'm learning that the most important balance has to come from internal my internal self and that I have to be satisfied and happy um, and, and growing inside the outside stuff is going to change a million times, and I need to recognize um, when I am not being supportive and loving and when I am turning very robotic. I know that I'm in trouble when everything feels robotic, that I'm doing it on autopilot, that I'm not fully human. And I feel that sometimes when I've worked, you know, every single weekend for two months or three months or, you know, I go off on a trip for a month and all I do the whole time I'm there is work. Um, so I have to find that place where I say, okay, you're at that point where you are becoming robotic. You have to step away. Meditating, running, exercising, all those things help. And all of those things help with music. So sometimes music takes me away for a couple of minutes and I can then go, okay, okay come back to yourself, remember what you are and who you are. Um, it is very easy to get lost in this world because of all the things around you that are pulling at you. And it's that self-understanding that I have to get in touch with more and more and more often. Sit beside the breakfast table Think about your troubles Pour yourself a cup of tea and think about the bubbles. You can take your teardrops and drop them in a teacup. Take them down to the riverside and throw them over the side to be swept up by a current. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. Today I'm joined by a Sea Shepherd captain and board member, Peter Hammerstead. 
Sea Shepherd is an international non-profit conservation organization that protects the oceans from illegal exploitation and environmental destruction. Founded by Captain Paul Watson in 1977, Sea Shepherd has since grown into a worldwide movement with operations in over 20 countries. Peter joined Sea Shepherd as soon as he was old enough to submit an application, age 18. And since then, Peter has sailed the seven seas from the Labrador coast to Antarctica and been recognized for his fearlessness in the face of illegal whaling, sealing and fishing practices. So Peter, it's wonderful to have you here today. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) And why do you think I chose Think About Your Troubles as your opening track? Well, listening to the music, it felt a bit like the circle of life, but with a lot more science to it. And I liked the I liked how this song equates the tear with the ocean and and what what's always shocked me when I was a kid is that when you go to school you learn all kinds of subjects under the sun. I'd never use algebra nowadays, for example, but you never learn ecology. And yet ecology and knowing our place within the natural world seems to be, that should be the most important thing. We have to teach children, but we don't. And so I was thinking about that. And maybe a bit depressing, but uh, the song just made me think of ocean acidification and all the different problems that we're faced with. So we met um, actually fairly recently, and I'd come to see the screening of Leslie Chilcott's new film, uh, Watson, which is about your founder, Captain Paul Watson. And watching that film, um, just some of those scenes where you're confronted with these seemingly impossible obstacles and um, your determination comes through in spades. Is that something you've always had? I think so. I think from an early age, I felt a strong kind of disgust for injustice. And I guess I've always believed that uh, when you know that something's wrong, when you finally have that knowledge, you also have an obligation to do something about the problem. And not doing something, being passive about it is uh, complicity in that wrong. And it's that old saying that evil prevails only when good people stand by and do nothing. And when I was 14 years old, I saw a picture of a dead whale being pulled up the slipway of an 8,000-ton factory whaling ship. And that image haunted me. And I feel very fortunate that I got to spend my 20s directly confronting this monster of my childhood nightmares. And not only just confronting it, but actually partaking in actions that resulted in thousands of lives being saved down in the Antarctic, by which I mean thousands of whales that are swimming free in the Antarctic right now because a small group of passionate and compassionate people decided to intervene. Because I read somewhere that you said some of the difficulties at school just further, you know, in some ways informed that desire to help those or defend those who couldn't defend themselves. Yeah, I I was the subject of of bullying in school. And I think that for sure helped instill that strong urge to defend those who cannot defend themselves. I I couldn't really defend myself very well then. Um, Now I feel incredibly fortunate that I can sail into harm's way to defend marine wildlife, and I have 500 tons of steel to negotiate with. Just on that, do you not feel like, what is the experience of fear like for you? Um. I certainly feel fear from time to time. For me, it's rarely been about the confrontations that we have with these poachers. It's often been more equated with going into 
terrible weather and high seas. And it's not been uncommon to be in 30-foot seas down in a place like the Southern Ocean where rescue is far away. If there's an emergency, there's not really anybody close by to help where you're really on your own in a very real sense. Um, there's some fear equated with that, especially when you have the responsibility for both the safety of the ship and the crew. But in the confrontations, I, I'm just so focused on the work and also very bolstered, I suppose, in confidence by the support that I have of the crew around me. I'm never alone in it. Um, when we block that refueling attempt from happening, for example, down in the Southern Ocean by this factory whaling ship, um, I had 30 crew on board and all 30 of my crew were willing to stand their ground for the whale. So that gave me an incredible amount of confidence. The tens of thousands of supporters we have around the world, that gives me confidence. So I don't really get to feel fear so much in that moment. In those moments, my fear is not doing enough or backing down or that would be my fear. Over the years, there must have been some you know, nerve-wracking trips, even if you're able to deal with those nerves a lot of the time. And you've obviously talked about standing your ground to the 8,000-ton factory whaling ship. What about catching thunder? The Thunder was this internationally wanted fishing vessel, a ship that was wanted by Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization. It had been blacklisted for over 10 years by different regional fisheries management organization. This was essentially a ghost ship that would just come in and out of various ports of disrepute. And in those 10 years that it had been fishing illegally in the Southern Ocean, it had made an illicit profit of about $60 million. Nobody had seen it for years. And so we set out to try to track down this notorious ship and to shut it down ourselves and to do what no government essentially could do. This was a vessel that we ultimately found after very little time of searching, but in the shadowlands of the Southern Ocean, the most remote area of the sea in the world. This is two weeks sailing from South Africa, two weeks sailing from Australia. And the plan was really simple. The idea was that this was a ship that had avoided justice by changing its name and flag frequently, by repainting its vessel. And if we followed them, then they couldn't change their name. And we could then be this veritable loud hailer exclaiming to the world, this is where this poacher is. Somebody somewhere take over this citizen's arrest for us. And really unbeknownst to us, uh, finding the thunder would start what would become the longest sea chase in history, a, a, a maritime pursuit that lasted 110 days covering three oceans and 11,000 nautical miles. What sustained you during that time? <laughs> um the, my crew, my crew sustained me. The the first thing we we did when we found the thunders, we we followed them through the ice. They tried to lose us in the heavy ice flows that surround the Antarctic continent. They then tried to lose us in heavy weather, and they then tried to simply wait us out and test our patience. And at one point, we were burning so little fuel because both of us had our engines shut down that we could essentially be out at sea for over two years. And I had a crew that was willing to stay out with me for over two years. And that was a constant source of support. But also the knowledge that regardless of outcome uh, or final outcome, every day that we were with this illegal fishing boat, they weren't fishing. And so every single day we were with this ship, we were saving Patagonian and Antarctic toothfish. And if that was the only thing to come of it, then that would have been victory enough. True love will find you in the end. 
you'll find out just who was your friend Don't be sad, I know you will Hey, this is Beauty Wolf, and this is Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. And this morning, it's wonderful to welcome someone who's been called the guru of audio branding for creating one of the most famous signatures of all time, the five-note, three-second Intel bong, which is supposedly heard somewhere in the world every five minutes. In addition to this, Austrian composer, or as he would say, sound inventor, Walter Wazowa has composed music for films as varied as the J.T. Leroy story through to Minority Report, worked with directors from Spielberg to Vendors, and went on to found Health Tunes, which is what we're really going to focus on today, a non-profit streaming platform which pairs sound music with evidence-based clinical research, after his son Luca was diagnosed with a rare bone syndrome and he found Western medicine unable to offer answers. So Walter, it is wonderful to have you here. Beatty, thanks for inviting me. It's so good to see you again. And that opening track, which was Daniel Johnston, True Love Will Find You in the End, uh, that made me think of you because you've also worked on the, on the documentary. Yeah, this brings so, so great memory back. It's like we spending a week with Daniel Johnson at Sundance. It was just incredible. He's such a genius and genius in the sense that he has this one day where he's the most amazing, amazing performer, musician. The next day he forgot his music and it's just going from left to right. And when he is in that zone, it's just so powerful. And so simple. I, I admire him and I have to say I envy him. He's incredible. And I think that's a perfect way to now talk about health tunes mm -hmm. and you know, what led you to found that company? Um, I got lucky in my life, many things, and, and I want to give back. That was one thing. Um, as already mentioned, Luca, my son, had a symptom like Pertes, which we really attribute the healing and health, the fast healing to sound and, and, and music. So all that together and um, also like the, the master's um, thesis for psychology, all these impulses led me to found Health Tunes. And Health Tunes is a free nonprofit Anybody can log in and log on um, and find music for their symptoms and syndromes. And, and, um, and you just need to dial in the genre you like, because it's very important that you listen to the music you like. Quite often, the music is the vehicle to bring banal beats into your system, and they're the healing quality. And... Um, it's super successful from Alzheimer's to oncology and in NICU. And I've seen doctors and parents cry next to the newborns when they see how powerful, how quickly powerful this is without any side effects, that you can bring the heart rate of a baby, of a newborn, which is 180, in two minutes to 145, which is their resting heart rate. Were you aware of music's power 
in this way as medicine, as something that can heal, that can restore, that can reconnect um, before, you know, Luca was diagnosed with that condition? To be honest, no, I wasn't. So that awakened yeah, that interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I'm every other week I'm mesmerized to learn something new, and and the community is incredible. There's so much research out there, and um, and you're a part of this as well. It's like I loved when you talked about um, what you're doing and how powerful it is in dementia, and and and. It's so great to see so many people working on this. And well, and it's lovely when people are working on it with the intention of actually connecting the dots, you know, and realizing that music often just equals thumbs up, you know, mm -hmm. rather than it being prescriptive, rather than it having to be this way or that way. Yeah. And a big part of the work that I was doing with music and, and Alzheimer's and dementia um, was actually showing that the music didn't have to be familiar as mm. traditionally believed, which was something Oliver Sacks had theorized but not mm. tested. But it could be as effective even removing the memory component, you know, mm. playing new songs and watching someone who was catatonic getting up and dancing or someone who was nonverbal singing along to music they'd never heard. Um, so that's almost what I keep on going back to in in that realization that i just think the more we think we know the more we don't um when it comes to music in the brain because it it goes incredibly deep you know and in many different instances and not even just with neurological conditions but with you know with just basic stuff um and with you know with luca it was also because you you found Western medicine to be limited. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you spent a year of just what sound healing and... Uh, um, it, it was a strict diet, like cutting out sugar and gluten, which um, I wish we would still do, but it's really hard to follow through, and osteopathy and acupuncture. And all that together was an amazing mixture. Like that, after a year, it was running around again, and it's healed and done and dandy. And and um, he's a wild boy and jumping of balconies, and is still fine. So it's it's really miraculous. So it's him and the music who really helped that that healing. And so the music I can share with the world now, and I'm glad that it's possible. I never meant to cause you any sorrow I never meant to cause you any pain I don't want to one time see you laughing, babe Hey, this is BT Wolf and today it is such a great pleasure to be joined by author, producer, business owner international drama queen Cora Coleman, a truly multifaceted and cosmic being. Queen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it is a pleasure, me too. Thank you for inviting me. So just a few of Queen's incredible highlights as a drummer include a five-year tenure with Prince, a three-year run with Beyonce. Jesus, I mm. mean. <laughs> and Queen is the only musician to play in two of the NFL's 
top 10 Super Bowl halftime shows. An entrepreneur as well as a creator, Queen is also the founder and CEO of the cutting-edge construction company, Building Simple. Queen, what a powerhouse you are. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, thank th you. Thank you again for being with us. And it's no great mystery, but why do you think I chose that as your opening track? <laughs> well, it's definitely a huge marker in my life, for sure. And a historic moment for Prince as well. And that particular segment at the end is, is significant with the marching band for me because it's like full circle of being in the marching band when I was in high school and college. And I think it's a statement of history and intention and impact and empowerment embodied in a, a single performance. Just insane. And like <laughs> the fact that that is your opening track, because if anyone... <laughs> didn't realize from Queen's great humility, <laughs> she, of course, was playing that halftime Super Bowl show. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, just, it was a life-changing experience, you know, to sit there and share that, what, what would be his largest performance with him. So, yeah, definitely. And, and there was a downpour, right? It was, yeah. Like... <laughs> Purple rain raining, you know, raining through purple rain. I don't think uh, it could have been any more divine than that, you know. How do you not get scared or how do you not, you know, the, that whole thing of having these huge mammoth moments that other people would just like probably quake at. Hmm. How do you overcome the fear or the doubt or the, you know, the thoughts that aren't necessarily he healthy or helpful? Hmm. I think the journaling and visualizing is a huge part of it, you know, because the way the brain works, you can dream about something or daydream or nightdream or fantasize or whatever, and your senses will respond as if it is. And so if you spend a lot of time practicing or visualizing, then you train the body to respond as it would be if it was in that space. So then it actually becomes less unfamiliar the more you dream, the more you try, the more you explore. And so um, as a kid, I fell a lot, but I got up just as much as I fell, if probably not more, you know. And then it then becomes about the art of the fall. So then it's not falling anymore, it's something else and I do get nervous and sometimes we're nervous because we hope whatever we do is received and then I started saying well let me do my best right and then if I do my best then I can't do anything more than my best so then let me prepare so if I prepare then I'm I'm ready to do my best and then when I do my best then I don't have to worry about what they think because that was my best and if they didn't like it then you know, kind of, oh, well, but I can be proud of myself for trying. And that is success in itself. And then on the 50-yard line of the Super Bowl was really no different than when I was the section leader at Howard mm. on the 50-yard line, yeah. you know, because I was just pursuing my best, you know. But it, it also makes me center my thoughts and keep things in perspective, 
because as quickly as I am where I am, whatever that is, um, that can change. You know, I can pass away from this dimension and then I'm, n- I'm not here anymore with the same impact mm. or I can get into an accident and I can lose my limbs. And if I identify myself as exclusively I'm Prince's drummer mm. or I'm Beyonce's drummer or I am this thing. Well, then when I separate from that thing, then then I don't know who I am anymore, yeah. you know. So I think over time, it's made me see my performance as less of a performance and more of, of an expression. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting in the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Today I'm joined by the one and only... You can't clap for yourself. <laughs> and supremely brilliant, Ali Willis. Uh, yo, the f- crowds are applauding. <laughs> the Grammy winning, I don't even need to do this intro. <laughs> the Grammy winning songwriter and hitmaker who was inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame last year for writing such classics as September, Boogie Wonderland with Earth, Wind and Fire, Neutron Dance for the Pointer Sisters, the Friends theme tune, the Color Purple musical, and a personal favorite of mine, You're the Best. Around! Wow. (laughs) Getting to play September with her at the LA Times news story that I curated last year was a personal life highlight. And in addition to all of this, Ali is also the world's greatest kitsch collector, multimedia artist, writer, party thrower, early cyber pioneer, and basically the queen of Detroit. She has also been described... (laughs) Look at all the Detroiters applauding. Look at all these seals clapping in here. Um, (laughs) Closer to home than you know. Okay. She's also been described as one of the most dangerous subversives living in the u.s so ali is there anything else that i've missed there's a lot that you've (laughs) okay but we have been friends for so long that should have been four times as long but no that's fine (laughs) (laughs) why do you think i chose otis dock of the bay uh okay a absolutely one of my favorite songwriters of all times and i was in madison uh wisconsin on December 10th, I think, uh, to, uh, 1968, and when his plane crashed. And I, it, it was a massive snowstorm, and you, you couldn't see a foot in front of your face. But it's almost like there was like a time shift where you heard this boom, and the snow just flurried, like someone sliced it in half. And I'm the only one that heard it. I was in a sorority house. Yes, it's true. And no one heard anything. And I was going to a Otis Redding concert that night. And we're waiting outside. It's 10 below zero. And they were not letting us in. And it was almost two hours after. And I, it just came into my head, oh, my God, that was a plane crash. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Let me take this. That was the plane um, crash sound, it was, sound effects. <laughs> it was a plane crash. 
And um, then, you know, the they put a bullhorn out the window and announced it. And I rushed, rushed back because I lived right on a lake and was uh, Madison has a lot of lakes. And I went right to uh, Lake Monona and I did literally sit on the dock for three days um, watching everything from uh, Carla Thomas, who Otis did tons of, you know, duets with. Walking across the ice to identify the body, I saw everything lifted up. Jeez. It was so uh, traumatic because there were no thoughts in my head yet of being a songwriter. But oh my god, this guy was king. A lot of people did not know about Otis Redding. You know, if you were white, you had to seriously be into soul music to know. So he was just, you know, hitting it. But, um, yeah, so I've always felt an affection. And then through the years, I've had, like, kind of interaction with his uh, family, uh, his nephews. Yeah, his nephews. Not realizing that there was any connection. They just had this, they tracked me down on Facebook. They stayed on me for years, really, uh, to write with them. They were young. One was, like, 18. One was 22. Uh, and they finally, you know, flew out to L.A. I had an immediate thing with them. We wrote great together, worked great together. And they kept talking about their uncle. And I finally said, well, who's your uncle? And they said, well, you know our last name. And I said, no, I know your rap names. You know, I, I don't know your real name at all. And one of them threw a checkbook over to me and it was Redding. And I said, oh, my God, I saw the plane crash. So... Um, uh, you know, I feel an, an just an incredible draw, mm. and and plus he was just a masterful. Forget about the voice, forget about what he looked like, which was incredible. But um, you know, just as a songwriter, yeah, I mean, brilliant songs, and as a human being, and, yeah, yeah, that's what everyone says who yeah. knew him. And he was only twenty eight, <laughs> which is crazy. But that story about you. You know, literally sitting on the dock of the bay yeah. and having that experience, which is so fascinating that no one else heard the crash. I mean, yeah. that's unique in itself. I'm sure that there are people in Madison, mm. but within this sorority house, it was like we heard nothing. And to me, it was like, oh, my God, like a bomb has just gone off. And then having his nephews come and seek yeah, you like out years 40, later. 50, like yeah. 40 years later or whatever it was. It was crazy. Obviously, with the theme of this show, looking at how music sort of is a savior, can be a savior. Yeah. Let's talk about 1978 and how you began that eating moldy pasta, a corner what, of that's a tortellini. Way too much of an English accent. <laughs> eating what? Moldy. Moldy. Pasta. Yes. Pasta. That's it for the English speaking people. That's pasta. Yes. Well, you know, this is a European audience as well. <laughs> oh. Well, all um, right. And ha so how you were essentially on food stamps at that yeah, point. Yeah, at dog food, ate dog food, yeah. And the transition from that to the end of the year. By the end of the year, I'd sold 10 million records. But still getting the food stamps, getting medical assistance, because the money is so delayed. Um, yeah, I... Um, so my my uh, my one and only album with the first 10 songs I ever wrote came out in 1974, which is why I quit the record label because I became an artist on the record label. And I was extremely uncomfortable performing. 
Um, it just had really never been on stage before, and they put me out in front of 10,000 people, and it was one disaster after another. So um, I didn't want to play live, got dropped from the label. Uh, by coincidence, day I'm dropped, someone takes me to a recording session. The singer ends up being the one person who has bought the album and uh, sent me home to write a song. So the day after I got dropped, I had my first cover. That was Bonnie Raitt. And I figured it's going to roll from here. And I would get one or two songs cut a year, but either not by a significant artist or not the single. So 1978, by this time I'm living in California. I was in New York because if I'm going to starve to death, it's going to be in the sunshine. And um, friends of mine, uh, my best friends were the Harlettes, which were Bette Midler's backup group. And they got their own record deal. They were in San Francisco where their producer, David Rubinson, was. And he was also producing Patti LaBelle. So Patti heard these songs of mine, which was really me tapping pencils together and singing along. And she flew um, me, they both flew me up to San Francisco to actually make demos of my songs. And Patty then started cutting my songs, became the first artist to regularly cut the songs. But when I got up to San Francisco, she said, I, you know, I have another friend here and, uh, you know, he wants to write with you. And I thought, I am not going to be with the friend who's probably at my status I'm with the big fish. I got to stay here. So I avoided the studio for days. And then I think on the third day, I'm in the hallway. The studio doors open. I see this must be the friend. He walks outside, duck into the bathroom. I have to go. So I sit on the toilet. And as I am tinkling away, <laughs> the bathroom door opens. And I hear these clumpy feet. And then, and then there's these two male shoes sticking under the bathroom stall. And it's just this deep voice, you know, Patty says you're a great writer coming to Studio B. Anyway, I'm trapped. I go into Studio B. He already had tracks ready. And there were an enormous amount of keyboards. Never seen that many keyboards. But I didn't know who it was. And I just thought, oh, you know, I have to do this. And he had like four songs he wanted to do. So we rip through these lyrically. And we were in the middle of the second, and he gets a phone call. And it was the first time I had a chance to really stare at him, because in those days, they would bring the phone over to you, and then you'd kind of turn sideways to try and have some privacy. So I'm staring at him, and then I look at the keyboards, and I go, oh, my God, this is Herbie Hancock. So I ended up writing um, a few songs on his album, and he needed lyrics because it was the first time using a vocorder. Which was, you know, there was a pipe. Yeah, Stevie Wonder used it a lot. Yeah, and so you can talk the words, but the notes that you play will sing it in that melody. So I ended up being on the next couple of albums. So between Patty, Herbie, and then a a friend of mine, um, sleeping with someone in Earth, Wind, and Fire. I eventually then met uh, Verdine White, who started writing with me, said, I'm going to tell my brother about you. And days later, I got a call from Maurice White uh, asking me if I wanted to write the entire next Earth, Wind & Fire album with him. Maurice also said something else to you, which 
you said had a profound impact. You which, might have to tell me what that yeah, was. Which was, what the, was <laughs> that you were put here to communicate. Oh, I asked him three or four years later, I was at his house, and I never understood why I was chosen for that big of a gig, to write an entire Earth, Wind & Fire album at the height of their career, to co-write. And he said to me, um, I had a vibe that you were put here as a communicator and that uh, messages would come through you. And uh, I, I felt like you could help me get my message out. And that blew my mind. And I, you know, the more I go through life, I go, oh, my God, that guy real seriously saw who I was decades before I realized it. And it took me many, many, many years to realize how incredible it was that I was put in that circumstance of working with a group that was that spiritual at a time when no one, forget about other groups, like no one was, um, and that it kind of gave me this life view of everything is connected uh, you do something bad, it's not, it doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone and eventually the world. Um, it just gave me this incredible overview of how to approach uh, life, but it took, honestly, decades for me to understand that that had actually happened to me, that the biggest gift I was being given was not even the hit records, it was the philosophy of how to conduct your life. That's Incredible. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with all of the work that you're that you've done and that you're continuing to do? Uh, just a sense of that you need to live your life in the most positive way possible. Understand that it's not just your responsibility to live your life, but to keep it, you know, clean and together for everyone. And um, uh, be an individual. Um, my whole thing is, what is going to make me happy? And I judge everything the same. I judge my friends that way. I judge my work that way. I judge my front lawn that way. Is this going to make, if I take this action, is it going to make me happy or is it going to cause trouble? And I used to always pick the trouble path. There was some complexity about that that was attractive to me. Um, but, you know, it would lead me into these dark holes. It would lead me into things just being too complex. So as soon as I stripped it all down to happy, unhappy, um, I can make decisions faster. And, and if you choose the wrong thing, and I'm a real strong believer in this, the most important thing is make a decision. There is no fun being on the, in the middle ground where you're tortured that you're not doing it and scared that, you know, um, just commit to it. And if it's wrong, go the other way the next day there, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a thousand, no, there's 10 trillion no's for every one yes. So it, it ain't a big thing. It's not a failure. It's not a mistake. And I know that you've said also that you're best when you don't know what you're doing. Well, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And then as soon as I know, I, I get bored and I want to move on to something else. And I used to be very, um, I used to feel guilty that people refer to me as a musician because I was literally a musician who couldn't play, didn't even know what a bar was, still don't. 
Um, but a, a musician is a musical being. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, in anything I do, I did, I, I sold a thousand paintings before I realized you mix colors together to get other colors. So I'm, I'm best in the dark on a sunny day. I remember you saying that, uh, you know, you came in happy, you're going to go out happy. Yeah. Uh, and for you, this is really the song happy, that represents happy, happy. your personality. Yeah, uh, without question. Yes, it's a party all the time. So let's have a listen to September by Earth, Wind & Fire and take it from there. 